Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast today is brought to you by the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association. The DVBIA supports, promotes, and represents the shared interest of 7,000 businesses and property owners in the central 90-block area of Vancouver's downtown core. Uh, two events that we want uh, to uh, note for you here. We're uh, launching a new series of uh, public discussions called BIV Talks. Our first one uh, is on Tuesday. We've assembled a panel to talk about how to survive Greater Vancouver's real estate slump. And then on April 29th, we're going to explore the 5G dilemma. Register now. Get more information at BIV.com events. This week's federal budget suggested the Canadian economy remains in pretty good straits, record low unemployment, continuous economic growth, among other things. But we've been discussing on our podcast some challenges too, large consumer debt loads, housing market volatility, emerging increases in things like credit delinquency among that. My guests today have a great vantage point on our financial institution's health, and uh, it's a big part of this picture. Robert Colangelo is the Senior Vice President of Canadian banking financial institutions. And Sahel Amar is vice president of the Global Financial Institutions Group. Both are executives at DBRS, which is one of our major credit rating agencies. Good to have you both with us. Um, Sahel, let's start with you. Let's talk about the general health of the financial institutions right now. Last year, I think they were tucking away uh, nearly 900 you know, ninety billion dollars in profits. Uh, is this is it a healthy sector right now? Uh, financial institutions are actually doing quite well. Um, so they're making good amount of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're sitting on assets, loan assets, which have been performing uh, very solidly. Um, and they're generally risk averse institutions. They're very reg- regulated. Um, so from our perspective, um, we look at the risk of default of a financial institutions. That's essentially what we do when we do our ratings. And we're quite confident that um, given the volatility in the housing market, given the economic headwinds that uh, we've been facing, the financial institutions are actually in a pretty good position to weather some of the storms. Because Robert, you know, we can point back to 2008 when there was so much financial institutional calamity in the United States. And ours, uh, ours in fact, gained almost a, a, you know, a global reputation for the resilience uh, because of the way that the regulations had been, uh, had been, had been fashioned over the years. Uh, this makes them, again, uh, a little bit airtight when it comes to any of the, you know, the, the storms that might approach. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think uh, OSPI, the regulator, has certainly been very at the forefront uh, during the financial crisis. And They've implemented a lot of things and a lot of rules uh, trying to ensure that the banks had a lot of capital in case things mm-hmm. went south. Uh, and that's why the reputation the Canadian banks have as a result of that, that they withstood that uh, financial crisis. And, and as Sohail said, you know, historically, the, the loan loss performance of the big banks has been relatively strong, uh, really good. And um, a lot of the uptick that we're seeing now is, is more accounting related, the new IFRS 9 standard that they've had to implement, uh, which has more of a forward looking. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, look uh, to it um, and so view. So they need to look into, you know, where the economy is going and factor in how that would relate into loan losses. So how, how does that change actually the nature of their outlooks and, and the way that they 
present them to the public, obviously to investors, but to to the public? Well, I mean, I think it it doesn't necessarily change their outlook. I think it's just that they now need to factor in those those inputs into their you know their their provisioning. Um, a lot of that is based on stuff that their economic departments would be putting out anyways. Mm-hmm. And so they're taking that now and having to factor it into how they're actually booking their, their provisions for credit losses. Yeah. So, Hal, are they, would you, when you examine, uh, say, financial institutions on a more of a global perspective, are ours uh, relatively transparent? Do they, do they have a, you know, a, a an openness that, that uh, would, would be similar to what we'd see in other countries? Well, so uh, they are transparent. Uh, another question might be, well, uh, how transparent, um, <laughs> how much data we get from, say, the Bank of Canada or OSFI. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the U.S., for instance, um, you get a lot of data from the Fed on the banks. Yes. So you can slice and dice those banks and, and, and analyze them, look at them in very, very, uh, in a lot of detail. Um, here with the banks, we get a decent amount of data. Could be better. Um, then we also look at the credit union sector here. So the cooperative sector, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got the Van Cities, Coast Capitals, you've got Desjardins in Quebec. Um, there, the data is a little, uh, you know, uh, less granular. Oh. So that requires a little bit more of a deep dive. Um, but in terms of, you know, our ability to analyze the financial institutions, one uh, advantage we have is we meet with these financial institutions. Uh, we discuss strategy with them. Um, you know, we get um, f- first view on the changes that are coming their way. So, you know, one of them being open banking. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is something that is, um, uh, you know, front and center uh, for CEOs of financial institutions, not just in Canada and not just within the uh, cooperative sector, but across the globe. So, so what does open banking really mean? How how would I, as just you know, someone who's deposited some money there and and holds some RSPs with them uh, and has some other investments, but what would what would that look like? So, for um, open banking is essentially bringing a technology solution to a depositor where. Uh. They look at their transactions, they look at the kind of products they have, and then imagine a Google that has collected all your information and directs certain kind of ads at you. Open banking, fintechs could potentially direct you to certain products which are more suited to you. So that's the very basic um, explanation of open banking. Good, good. Robert, is, is this the area where our financial institutions are looking for growth right now? In open banking or in mm-hmm. general? Um it wouldn't i don't necessarily think the banks you know they they may say that they're into or supportive of open banking um but i think the the view is is that they need to own that client relationship mm. uh that is what's important to them uh and having the data on their clients and where they need to you know offer services and products to them is certainly relevant to their growth um what we've seen is is that obviously the banks over the last couple of quarters are focused on commercial lending, for example, uh, given that housing and, and the mortgage market is tending to slow down in terms of growth. Uh, so they're looking at other areas to, to grow the business and, you know, their capital markets business as well as commercial lending. They are looking also at other consumer lending, so auto lending or credit cards. Uh, and so that's where the growth is going to come from. And a lot of these banks also have 
operations outside of Canada. So in the U.S. Uh, and with respect to even Bank of Nova Scotia, they've got, uh, you know, the Pacific Alliance region. So Mexico, Colombia, Chile, mm. and Peru. Mm. Uh, and that's where the growth is really coming from for these banks is outside of Canada. Yeah. Uh, an American uh, acquaintance of mine uh, was uh, here in Vancouver the other day and he looked at this thing and he goes, oh, you have a TD up here too? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes, we do. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Sahel, about the the uh, the relationship right now, the delicate relationship that banks seem to have around the volatile housing market and, and what kind of straight, generally speaking, it has placed them in. It obviously position them for a lot of growth because of the amount of borrowing that Canadians wanted to do in order to buy and buy and buy and buy. Uh, but are they in, you know, a bit of a delicate space now in, in markets like this and in Toronto? Um, delicate space. Um, I, I think they're in a, a good spot right now uh, because, well, for two reasons. One, because the regulator for financial institutions is very strong. Um, and two, because banks themselves, you know, they've got this oligopoly, uh, they are systemically important. So they are careful about the kind of risks they take on their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the tricky part about banks become the HELOC component, the home equity lines of uh, credit. credit yeah, right? yeah. Uh, there too, we find that they're quite careful in terms of how much they allow people to get leveraged. So the banks are kind of pulling back on the amount of leverage they allow because they also know that the health of the consumer impacts their health in the long term. So they've been cautious over there. Then you've got the uh, credit unions, uh, which are not regulated at the federal level, but they're regulated at the provincial levels. And their regulations are also quite close uh, to the federal level. So they're also quite careful about how much lending they do against um, residential real estate. Um, And and they're cautious about, um, you know, lending to people who may not have regular income um, or, uh, you know, they might be new immigrants here who don't have a credit history. Um, So they factor all those um, uh, things into the decision-making process when they're giving out a loan. And that's really one of, that's an important reason behind why they're not just the delinquencies, which is essentially, you know, have you paid your interest and principal payments uh, over 90 days? If you haven't, then banks start marking those as delinquent accounts. Yes. Right. Or the loan losses. So neither delinquencies nor loan losses have really spiked up. No, I uh, we talked on the program to uh, someone from Equifax Canada recently about their latest data. And, and while it's ticking up in a tiny way, it's still a fairly tiny number. I mean, right. we, we still are a country that is not delinquent. But we are, though, Robert, a country that has a lot of consumer debt. Oh, and, and it's not all mortgage debt; it's other debt, right? And that's and that's uh, kind of what Sohail is alluding to is the fact that you know, um, with the home equity line of credit that the banks are are pushing on clients, it is providing the clients that access to money whenever they want it. Um, and so, if there is a financial distress for that borrower, then they could still you know support their lifestyle as a result of being able to draw down on their home equity line of credit. But again, going back to what Sohail said, the banks are very prudent in their underwriting. Yeah, they always are in the first position. So they always have uh, first security on the real estate that's securing the loan. Yes, exactly. uh, they would never be in a second position. And uh, and again, their underwriting processes are very strong uh, mm-hmm. and very prudent. And in large part, that's due to the regula- regulations that they have in front of them. I, I don't necessarily want to put you 
both on the spot here, but do, do you have do you have anything to say about the alternative lending institutions that have emerged over the last? I mean, some of them have been with us for 50, 60 years, but but they seem to be a, a, a much more prominent now. And and are they the ones taking on the the risky people for the most part? Uh, they are taking on some of the risky people, yes. And then you've got the emergence of these mortgage investment corporations, uh, uh, right? Yes. Which are right, essentially yeah. they're not regulated. Yeah. Uh, and they, but, but I mean, we really don't have um, uh, insight into these mortgage investment corporations. And that's a problem, though, isn't it? That. That could be a problem right now. It's not because, according to Bank of Canada numbers, they form a tiny sliver of total lending ah. in Canada. And presuming those you know, Bank of Canada numbers are correct, um, they're not a source of systemic risk at this point in time. Uh, but you know, the, when we look at alternative lenders, we're not really talking about subprime loans here. That's important to realize. Oh, no. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So these are people that, um, you know, they they have a workshop, they don't have regular income, or they had some sort of a life event, they went through a divorce, and that's impacted their credit rating, right? So they need some time to get back on their on their feet. Um, and these loans tend to be shorter. So, you know, you'd get a, alt, a, a loan that is two years. So that reduces the risk component uh, for a financial institution. So it sounds like they serve a purpose. Right, exactly. They, 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 they serve a purpose, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I want to uh, get some thoughts from both of you about this week's uh, federal budget a bit, because obviously uh, we paid quite a bit of attention to what the federal government was proposing around uh, first-time home buying and, uh, and CMHC coming into the fray here and all of this. Yeah, how, how, what do you think the federal budget did, Robert, to the overall outlook of the banks at the moment? Well, I mean, I think our our overall view would be that those those new rules may not have a major impact on growth for the banks. Um, it it certainly addresses the affordability question for a first time home buyer, given the escalation in home prices, and I think that's where CMHC and the federal government are coming from. Mm-hmm. Is they they acknowledge that housing prices have probably skyrocketed somewhat and put a lot of first-time home buyers out of the marketplace. And this is another, you know, um, measure that they can take to, to try and get home buyers back in. Some of the prudential measures that have happened over the last couple of years are now having that intended consequence, right? So we're seeing slowing activity in the housing market, slower sales, housing prices on average are declining in some of yeah. the major markets. The mortgage stress test, the combination and of, of has, taxes, has, they've all they've all served their, to dampen, yeah. Right. And so I think now this is the government saying, okay, we're going to address that affordability question for first-time home buyers. What's interesting, though, is that CMHC is taking on some risk in this because obviously given that the 5% or 10% that they're lending or giving to the the borrower is not going to be paid back until the home is actually sold. And so there is some upside as well as some downside risk to that if home prices do continue to decline. And taxpayers are taking the burden. And and that's exactly it. CMHC is is us. Which some of those measures that they put in place over the last couple of years was for the purpose of reducing the risk that taxpayers were taking on yeah. and the risk that CMHC was taking on. And so this kind of goes in the opposite direction. Mm, exactly. Uh, I think I've heard one other credit rating agency this week say that the continued deficits that the Liberal government has been prepared to uh, to, to roll out uh, and clearly project out might one day affect the credit rating overall of this. Sahil, so, where, where do you come down on that? Well, I mean, uh, it's hard for me to give an opinion on that because we have another team that looks at 
mm-hmm. uh, federal levels of debt, and you know they'd be the right people to answer that that question. Um, just I just want to uh, add one more thing to you know these recent changes in the federal budget. Um, affordability is one aspect of housing. Um, the other aspect is supply. Yes, and that is so. I mean, for instance, these changes do nothing for the Vancouver housing market. No, right? no, and I think that that's the irony of it because right. I, I have to think that when these were devised, this market and Toronto were the two that uh, were thought about. I mean, this is not to help people get into a home in Saskatoon. I don't think, right. although it will, uh, it you know will for right you know, because of the price point and all of this. Did was the threshold? Do you think set too low then around what it is you could well, you could qualify I, I, for? I, I, or? For me, the bigger question perhaps is that was this, uh, you know, how does this policy address every market in, in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. So one way of going about addressing affordability, I mean, supply, okay, that's a long term issue that can't be uh, solved immediately. But, you know, what if you were to um, uh, exempt first time homebuyers from B20 test? Ah, right. Uh, okay. So if you do that, then, uh, and, and you have certain measures around, uh, you know, that that this policy doesn't get gamed and, you know, people are not taking advantage of it, um, then perhaps that's a better way of uh, going about uh, helping with affordability rather than, you know, the, the, this measure which essentially puts risk on the Canadian government in the longer run yeah. and may or may not really help first-time home buyers. So in a sense, you, you backstop uh, the buyers with uh, with with what uh, still the 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 support that's necessary. You just don't require them to jump through the hoop of the uh, of the stress test, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, people have given thought in the past. I know Robert to the idea of when we talk about minimum wages, for instance, uh, that maybe there should be minimum wages in that are different, almost market to market, city to city, almost. You know, and and uh, might this have been an opportunity to also think about perhaps having a different threshold in a place like Vancouver, in a place like Toronto? I mean, I think the difficulty with that, though, is is that then you become a little bit more detailed and specific to markets. And I think what the federal government is trying to do is do something that's broad-based. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not forget the timing of this is is also interesting in that, you know, we could be coming up on an election yeah. in the fall. Oh, yeah. Uh, the details of this plan are going to be ironed yeah, out get, by September. I've got to go after the millennials. I get that. Yeah, uh, and yeah, so, yeah. And so I think, I think that's some of the difficulty. I mean, I think – where they're also looking at it from is, as they said, the economy is is still doing quite well, mm-hmm. albeit now there's been some data that's come out today that, uh, you know, retail sales are, are down. Uh, so things may not be as rosy as, as we thought they were. Uh, and so I think, you know, what they're looking at is that, you know, there has been some wage growth. Uh, unemployment has been relatively low. And so from their perspective, borrowers should be able to support their you know their their debt burden if yeah. they do decide to to purchase a home and that's a that's a good segue um to the next sort of area in this once a hell which is the there are some clouds on the horizon here for uh, the global economy and and we don't know yet what impact there would be in Canada again we have record low unemployment we have we have some nice indices overall we're still predicting about 2% growth next year in the gdp but what what could we expect from the banking sector as perhaps some of these storm clouds gather a bit? Do they just retrench a bit, 
become more conservative? Do they do they find uh, innovative ways to help people that suddenly meet their some distress? Do they begin rescheduling debt? What what generally happens in a situation like this? I think some of all of that. Yeah. Uh, but it would depend upon what part of the financial industry you're talking about, right? So um, for banks, you know, they're driven by a profit motive. So they would retrench some of their uh, riskier lending. Mm-hmm. Um, they would, they may or may not be as willing to keep borrowers that are, you know, falling behind on their payments. Uh, then you have the cooperative sector that might be a little bit more willing to give forbearance to their uh, members, as they call them, um, and you know allow them to. I mean, so one example is these uh, payday loans. Right. Yeah, right. And uh, yeah. so some of the credit unions, they're actually offering a very similar product, but they're not charging the 200 percent interest rate to the yeah. members. Right. So, you know, financial institutions can help uh, consumers. Um, and you know, if history is any guide, um, they will, re, uh, you know, uh, retrench. Um, they will reduce the amount of a little bit more riskier lending that they do. Um, and they should be fine because, I mean, we, we also have to remember that, you know, the lifeblood of the economy is the money that flows through it. And the banks are essentially the hearts that pump that money. And so if the economy is uh, diversified, it's doing fairly well, then, you know, the money will keep flowing and the banks will keep doing well. Um, and our banks are, again, you know, as, as Rob mentioned, they are very conservative. There's nothing that has changed in the, um, uh, you know, in, in the way banks do business in Canada. Uh, there's no incentive for them to suddenly take on the kind of risks that, you know, perhaps we saw south of the border. Okay. I want to get a couple of thoughts before we conclude about, um, about fintech and, uh, and, and how quickly it's arriving, uh, how it's somehow being integrated into the traditional system uh, or not. What's your take on this, Rob? Well, I think fintech has obviously arrived um, quite some time ago, and I think the banks are are, are, are recognizing that and certainly doing things um, to address that. And as I said, I think the the key there is is that obviously the banks like that relationship with their client and don't want an intermediary to get in the way of that. No. And so that's why they've been doing some of the, the developing and working with fintechs to try and develop products and services and, and even streamline their processes. I mean, I think they recognize the fact that clients want to do business in a number of different ways, not just walking into a branch, obviously, you know, mobile, you know, online and various other ways. And so the banks are now making those investments to, to try and compete against fintechs. But can, can we also expect that they're going to be acquisitive? I mean, they're going to use, use some of their cash flow to, to go Absolutely. out and, go out and start, I, I, start I think grabbing we've seen these that. Companies. I think TD has done a couple of acquisitions in the fintech space. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, RBC has done a couple of partnerships. And so I think we'll definitely see more of that. Mm-hmm. So, Hal, what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with uh, Rob. It's it's an evolving landscape. Um, and some fintechs will survive, some will not. Um, then, you know, with fintechs, there is open banking happening. There is the payments infrastructure that is modernizing that might allow uh, institutions to, you know, settle um, accounts uh, with, within a matter of seconds, mm-hmm. right? So th- that could potentially uh, reduce some of the, the advantage that the big banks have had over the payment systems. So your smaller lenders, your credit unions, 
uh, could become a little bit more, have a little bit more of an advantage. I wouldn't say advantage though, but you know, they might catch up a little yeah, bit more. Yeah, I mean, at times fintechs to banks sometimes feel like word processors to com- to typewriters, right? Right, like, right. You know, the, the money moves faster, the, you know, especially if you're doing global right. business, you, you're not hung right. up and for days at a time getting money out of the country. And nobody's, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but very few people are stepping into a branch these days, right? Was, Most of your transactions are happening uh, uh, via mobile, via yeah. uh, your, your laptop. So everything is going digital. And, you know, as the next generation that is far more digital savvy, um, you know, has the earnings power, has, you know, has the cash to spend, they will look for institutions that um, cater to their needs that can move as quickly as they want to move. I was in a bank branch the other day and and in a lineup and I actually got on Twitter and said, you know, a, a bank lineup should make me feel nostalgic, not geriatric. And, and, and I felt I felt like I felt two hundred years old being there. Um, uh, last last question for both of you because it's it's uh, I think what you're pointing to with all of this change in the banking sector, but the nature of the economy being what it is, is that this may not be too bad a time for the industry to be transforming. That there are worse times to look at this transformation, Rob. That's absolutely correct. I think, um, you know, the banks, I think the outlook now is still cautiously optimistic, uh, even though there are these, you know, whirlwinds, uh, you know, around us. Um, and I think the banks are well positioned to deal with that. I think that they've, uh, you know, got the resources, they've got the earnings power, they'll look to generate, uh, you know, growth outside of Canada if need be. Uh, and so I think that uh, everything is working in their favor, to be honest with you. Yeah, so how? Uh, so I, I just say that if if you're a young person out there and looking to uh, work with the bank, look at the digital side of the banks. Yeah. Because that's where most of the hiring is happening. That's where most of it will happen. Uh, your risk management functions, your you know cash management functions, all of that is getting automated. And if you can position yourself well in, in you know at that strata, then you are likely to do well. Yeah. Sahel Amar and uh, Robert Colangelo, thanks both of you for coming in today. It's been a really good conversation. Thanks Thank for, having, you for us. having us. They're both with DBRS, of course. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening to BIV Today. We'll see you next time. 